Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. Thanks for joining us to lead, learn, and laugh. Well, today we're going to look at the latest trends related to 1031 exchanges. You know, the 1031 exchange has been a great tool for commercial real estate investors over the years. And uh, we've got a special guest here today, Ricky Novak, CEO with Strategic 1031 Exchange Advisors. Ricky, thanks for joining us. Absolutely, Michael. Happy to be here. And uh, Ricky is a uh, tax lawyer. He's a 1031 exchange advisor, and uh, he's been doing it for a long time. And uh, and Ricky, you know, like I said, uh, it, 1031s have been used a lot. Then the market turned. Uh, we didn't see a lot of them. Now we're seeing a lot of 1031s coming back. Uh, you're seeing it on, on a large, large scale. What type of volume are you seeing now? Yeah, Michael, it's amazing. Uh, mm-hmm. If you look at where the market was, uh, much like commercial real estate in general, 1031 was down about 90% uh, if you go all the way back to 2010. Uh, the last time I was on the program, you and I talked about how volume was certainly growing, and, and, and it continues to grow. Uh, the, the volume of activity we're seeing looks a lot like it did in 2005, uh, and I think there are some really good reasons for that. Uh, you know, Particularly, uh, we've had a, a significant change in, in the tax rates. Uh, so if you look at where long-term and short-term capital gains are today, if you look at the fact that a lot of states have increased their state rate. If you look at the fact that you have the 3.8% investment income tax uh, that was put on the books, uh, we suddenly are in situations where clients that are selling assets they've owned for less than a year, they're facing tax rates oftentimes north of 50%. Uh, even if they've owned the asset for longer than a year, uh, you know, you're still looking at rates that are generally above 30%. So all of a sudden, because of the tax environment we're in, a lot of people are using exchanges again. Oh, that's a, a good point there because tax rates are higher than they were in 05. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. you have higher rates. Uh, and then on top of it, you know, you look at other reasons why maybe the exchange volume was lower. You know, there were a lot of people that ended up having NOLs. Mm-hmm. And so those NOLs were on their books, those those losses that if they sold an asset at a gain, maybe in 2012, just as the market was starting to get better, they maybe had losses that could offset those gains. But most taxpayers have eaten through whatever losses they may have had. Mm-hmm. So now when they're selling a property, they're subject to that gains tax, which certainly has a lot of people worried. Yeah. And what types of uh, assets are you seeing most active in uh, your exchange clients today? You know, it really is trending the general market. You know, if you look at commercial real estate, particularly uh, the multifamily sector has been very hot. People have been selling assets at historically low cap rates. So certainly we're seeing a lot of uh, activity in the multifamily space. Also, single tenant net lease assets. So your Walgreens, Dollar Generals, things of that nature. Seeing a lot of those assets trade, a lot of exchange activity there. And we're seeing it throughout the different types of assets within those classes, meaning, uh, you know, the trend was first the core assets, kind of the class A assets. Uh, Then it trickled down into class B. And we're even seeing low B, high C activity in the net lease space. We're seeing, you know, regional credit. We're seeing even local credit begin to trade. Uh, So a lot of exchange activity there. If we stepped out of commercial real estate for a minute, uh, we're also seeing a lot of land. Uh, Could be commercially zoned, could be raw land, a lot of land being exchanged as developers are now again looking for land to develop 
develop. And then finally, uh, a lot of second home, vacation homes. So people buying and selling beach property, mountain property, uh, are doing exchanges as well. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. We've seen the same thing with activity on the net lease and apartments just uh, uh, being wild. Uh, you know, it's just a lot of activity. It's good to see for everyone. And, and today we're going to talk about some strategic 1031 exchanges and, and kind of get deep for the, the experienced commercial real estate investors out there. But uh, before we go there, remind us of the basics, uh, dates and, and, uh, and items related to a delayed exchange. Sure. So, so the basics are always important, and, and people uh, need to refresh their memory on them every now and again. Mm-hmm. Uh, the key in 1031 is you have to buy like-kind property. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the definition of like-kind in the real estate space is going to be, you know, office, you know, warehouse, industrial, re- retail, multifamily. Uh, land, uh, all of these retail assets or, or real estate assets are deemed to be like kind to each other. So it's a very broad definition of like kind. Mm-hmm. The key is it has to be held for an investment. It can't right. be an asset that you're primarily using for personal use. Or for your business. That's correct. It can right. be a business asset. So if right. you're using it in the trader business, it works as well. Right. Uh, so understanding what qualifies within the 1031, understanding the way the math works, uh, You know, just generalizing, you have to buy a property that equals or exceeds the sales price of what you're selling. And should you fall short of that number, you're going to pay tax on the shortfall. Uh, as far as your debt and your equity, all of your cash equity needs to be rolled forward into your new replacement asset. So if you sell a property for $2 million that has a million dollars of debt on it, you know, ignoring your closing costs for the moment, uh, when you go buy your replacement property, you're going to roll that $1 million of net cash forward. And then the million of debt you were relieved of, you need to replace with new cash, new debt, or any combination of the two. And you have to get all of this done in a very short period of time. Uh, from your date of sale, you have 45 days to identify what you plan to purchase and 180 days to close on it. So it's very important that that clients pay attention to those time frames. Yeah, and those time frames can be very important. And one of the mistakes that we see that folks may want to avoid is uh, trying to use that 45-day identification period to identify a property, maybe have it under contract. But if you haven't done your due diligence yet, you don't want to be in a situation like if you're working with us and we represent you, and after we get into deep into the due diligence, we're recommending that you don't buy it and you've already identified it. So you really want to get properties under contract well in advance of that 45-day identification period, don't you? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things that we can talk about, uh, you know, as far as what you can do to mitigate those challenges that come up with 1031. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly the timing's important. I mean, especially when it comes to debt. Uh, you know, going through the lending process today takes a lot longer than it used to. So you have to keep in mind that you know, going through pre-qualification, that's something you need to do before you ever sell your relinquished property to make certain you can qualify for debt and you're going to be able to find it. So, so that's an important topic. And then, as you noted, um, you know, jumping on the replacement property early in the game, uh, you know, going out, working with a firm, you know, having somebody help you with that process. There's nothing that precludes you from even putting the property you want under contract, your replacement property under contract before you sell your relinquished property. So uh, those are some some good tools. And I think after the break, we can get into, you know, some other tools that you can use as well. Yeah, those are good points. And you know, in, in this market where uh, core assets or stable assets, uh, even that aren't considered core, uh, there can be a lot of demand for, for leased assets. So when buyers are trying to put uh, 1031 exchanges are trying to get their relinquished property, they, they don't have it sold yet and they're getting the replacement property, they're making offers. They can make offers, but sometimes they may get into challenges where the sellers are like, 
uh, no, you're, it's contingent on you closing that, you know, that your money is not at risk yet from your buyer. You know, I'm just not comfortable. So, you know, they've also got to compete in that marketplace, don't they? Well, and that's a challenge, right? Yeah. There, there's a limited mm-hmm. amount of inventory. There hasn't mm-hmm. been a whole lot of development in the last several years. Yeah. So you, you have a greater pool of real estate buyer out there, mm-hmm. uh, you know, between private equity funds, uh, individual taxpayers, family offices. There are a lot of people that look at real estate as, as a hedge uh, mm-hmm. within their portfolio. And so you have a lot of people that are fishing in that same small pool, and it's really limiting the assets that are available. So, so getting, you know, into the the game early and starting to look for proper replacement property, there, there's never a time that's too early to do it. Uh, because as you said, if you look at the ID you know, rules, you can identify up to three properties of any value whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So within that 45 days, you have to, at the end of that period, be able to submit that identification letter to the intermediary saying, here are the three potential replacements. Well, if anything happens, you know, one of them, somebody else gets it under contract. One of them, you can't negotiate the the price that you're willing to pay. And then the third one, you you get into the due diligence process and you find out that there is a roofing problem and you're not comfortable. Well, if it's day 50 and all three of those potential replacement properties are now uh, not targets for you anymore, uh, you've got a problem because you're not going to be able to complete your exchange. You don't want to be in that position. Okay. And what if you identify a property, uh, your identification period is passed, and then uh, you're not going to buy it. Is there any mistakes to avoid there related to to the funds and the and the timing? And- yeah, it's important to understand you know, the the qualified intermediary. So firms like ours saw you know serve as a qualified intermediary. So we're kind of an independent third party that's there to help guide the taxpayer through the rules. Um, and the rules are, are put in place by the IRS and by the the U.S. Treasury. Mm-hmm. So as you're looking at those rules, you have to be aware of the fact that once the funds come into the QI account for the first 45 days, those funds can only leave the account for the purposes of paying earnest money on identified property or for closing on identified property. So if the the taxpayer identifies three potential properties and then on day 75 realizes that they're not going to close on any of them, they're in a position where under the rules, those funds have to stay with the intermediary until day 181. So understanding those rules around the funds are important because it's not a very liquid situation. And then if they go to an intermediary, that would give them sooner, then that that may put their exchange in in a problem area. So we're going to get to that. We're going to get to more tips. So stay tuned. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by your friends at Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com or call 800-408-BULL. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Hey, do check out our new website at commercialrealestateshow.com. There are videos there. There are blogs there. There are radio show podcasts. There are a, a section on uh, commercial real estate uh, FAQ. So check it out at commercialrealestateshow.com. Well, today we're talking about 1031 strategies with Ricky Novak. And uh, Ricky, we talked about before the break, you know, the QI, the 
qualified intermediary following the rules and some of the repercussions of not following the rules. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, Michael, it's so important that you have a QI that actually follows the rules. Uh, those rules are there for a reason. Uh, and, and there have been instances in the past where the intermediary has chosen not to follow the rules and has kind of been a what is referred to as kind of a friendly accommodator, meaning they'll just do whatever the client wants them to do. That may include backdating uh, ID letters. It may be releasing funds whenever the client wants the funds to be released. What you do is you run the risk of should the IRS ever look at those activities, uh, they could not only invalidate that particular 1031 exchange, they have the right to invalidate the exchange work that the QI has done uh, in total. So the risk is uh, if the QI is doing some sketchy things for you and doing it for others, um, everyone becomes at risk. Uh, So it's just not a really good practice. Certainly, I can understand why the taxpayer would want that because it allows them to, at least in their mind, complete the exchange, uh, but the risk that you take on is so significant. And the QI uh, cannot be also your broker or your attorney, right? Right. The QI needs to be a true disinterested third party. So they can't be an agent in any other capacity. And that goes down to your accountant, your banker, as you mentioned, your broker, your attorney. So you want someone who's truly arm's length. You want someone who's very knowledgeable. Uh, You know, the interesting thing about the 1031 world and intermediaries, there aren't really federal rules that oversee it, meaning outside of what's in the code and the regs, there isn't a governing body that oversees everything QIs currently do. Mm -hmm. So you really want someone that you can trust and that governs themselves appropriately. Okay. And some um, folks doing 1031 exchanges have had challenges in the past, or or maybe they're just nervous about it, putting large sums of money uh, in an account and uh, and they're afraid they could lose that. How can they protect themselves there? You know, there are a lot of alternatives. You know, the first thing is is do some diligence on the QI you're thinking about using. You know, don't be afraid to ask for some references, um, whether it's for former clients or for other uh, licensed professionals. So maybe ask the QI, you know, are there any attorneys or accountants you could refer me to um, who have worked with you in the past? Um, also, look at what the policies and procedures are. Uh, does the QI have E&O insurance? Uh, do they have a crime bond that would protect you in the event they tried to, you know, run away with your money? And then also look at their policies around what they do with the funds. Mm-hmm. Read your exchange agreement. Um, those agreements, essentially, you're signing your life away that says the QI has control over your money. They can do whatever they want. Um, so look and see what the QI is proposing to do. Uh, you want your funds held in highly liquid, safe accounts, so things like business money market accounts. Uh, you also can use qualified escrows and qualified trusts. That's where typically a bank steps in as a third-party administrator, and funds can't be moved unless both you and the QI send and sign documentation to the bank to have those funds moved. It's a little bit of an added expense, but it adds some some peace of mind. And then finally, uh, you know, you know, looking specifically at our firm, you know, one thing that we do is we allow our clients to select the bank that they want their money held in. So, you know, with the financial crisis we've been through, a lot of clients just sleep better at night if they know the money's held in their bank. And so we'll tell our client, great, put us in touch with your personal banker. We'll set up the QI account at your bank uh, so that you you know where it's being held. So just, you know, ask a lot of questions, do your diligence, make sure your QI is is structured in a way where they're looking out for your best interest. Okay. And we talked about if you identify property, you closed on your relinquished property, you identify some properties and you don't close that you really have to wait and you decide not to close to the 181st day to get your money back. What if you never identify properties? 
Sure. Good question. So if you elect not to identify property, so you don't close on anything within 45 days and you don't present a, re- a letter, you know, the the, uh, the letter to the uh, QI, then on day 46, your exchange is deemed to have failed. And so at that point in time, the QI should release your funds back to you. Okay. Okay, great. And what are some other mistakes, Ricky? I mean, you've seen uh, a lot of 1031 exchanges in your career from uh, the, not only you're involved in, but a lot of other folks were involved in. What are some other mistakes that folks should avoid? You know, one of the biggest challenges in 1031, like we mm-hmm. talked about the timing, right? And we talked mm-hmm. about identifying your replacement property and starting that process early. One additional way to avoid the challenge or the mistake of just not finding appropriate replacement properties. Just call me. Is, absolutely. <laughs> there you go. Call Michael Bull. Um, it, Shameless it is, plug. It, yeah, it was a great plug. Um, when you run the show, you get to do those That's things. It, so. yeah. um, you might want to consider a reverse 1031 exchange. Okay. So in a reverse exchange, uh, you actually are acquiring meaning taking title to your replacement property before you sell your relinquished property. Now, this is important because we've seen a lot of situations where sellers, well, I don't want to sell that asset until I find something. Well, if you really want to know you find something, go buy it now. And so tell us that process. They, that The buyer that's buying that the replacement property first, they can't really put it in their own name, right? That's correct. So what happens is your intermediary then serves kind of a dual purpose. Not only are they serving as your intermediary, they're serving as what's known as an accommodating title holder. So what's going to happen is your QI will go out and set up an LLC and will use that LLC to acquire the targeted replacement property. Now, that LLC doesn't have any money. So what's going to happen is the QI, you know, through the AT is going to look back at the taxpayer and say, okay, whatever the purchase price is, let's say it's a $2 million asset, banks willing to lend a million and a half on it. The bank's going to make the loan to the accommodating title holder. The additional equity that's needed in order to close on the property, that's going to be loaned from the taxpayer. So you've got this LLC borrowing $1.5 million from the bank, $500,000 from the taxpayer. It's going to use that capital to go close on the replacement asset, and now it's going to hold it for the taxpayer. And now you're under the same 45-day and 180-day gun in the exchange, meaning you have 45 days to identify what you intend to sell as part of the exchange. And then by the 180th day, you're going to have to acquire the property from the LLC uh, in order to complete the exchange. Yeah, and and if you've got an asset that's easy to sell that you're relinquishing, uh, that would seem a very, very safe thing to do, like some of these triple net single tenant assets. Uh, are, are easy to sell, but uh, as you've as you explained it, uh, in that case, uh, that person doing that 1031 has to have that cash. They have to have that money to do that. Right. So, so yeah. the financing element the, mm-hmm. on the acquisition side is critical because you're not going to have the the cash stemming from the sale of whatever property you're intending to sell. Mm-hmm. So, being able to to provide the necessary debt and equity to close the deal is going to be critical. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you look at the overall structure, you mentioned a very important challenge, and that is, you know, what happens if for any reason you're not capable of selling the relinquished property. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, if you if you know, and, and and I promised other than 1031, I wouldn't use any code sections or anything mm-hmm. like. Like that here on the uh, program, so I'll try to limit it. But there is a revenue procedure that came out um, in 2000 that really walked the taxpayer through how to complete a reverse exchange. Mm-hmm. And if you follow those rules explicitly, then you receive a safe harbor deferral benefit, meaning the IRS is guaranteeing you to defer that tax liability. Um, one of the issues a lot of people talk about is completing a reverse exchange within the 180 days. Mm-hmm. Can you go beyond 180? Um, and the answer 
answer is yes. Um, there have been situations where taxpayers have gone beyond the 180 days, and the reason it's taken so long is they've not been able to sell the relinquished property. They've had problems doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, those are called non-safe harbor exchanges. The preference is to structure the exchange because structurally, a reverse safe harbor and a non-safe harbor are a little bit different. So you really need to think about whether or not you can sell that property within 180 days on your way into the exchange. Okay, well, thank you. We're going to have more tips from Ricky. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by France Media. France Media provides exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com or call 404-832-8262. Welcome back. I'm Michael Ball, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Today we're talking about 1031 exchanges with Ricky Novak. And uh, Ricky, one of the issues that uh, come up with 1031 exchanges is when we're selling properties and we've got multiple partners. And, you know, two of the partners want to exchange into to a property and, and two don't. What are some tips uh, related to that situation? Yeah, that's probably one of the biggest challenges we see because oftentimes real estate is held in an LLC that's taxed as a partnership and you have different partners and, and different partners often want to do different things. Uh, so, you know, in an ideal world, if the partnership wants to do the exchange and all the partners are on board, then life's pretty easy. Uh, when the partners don't all want to do an exchange, that's where you have a challenge. Uh, so an example might be you might have a partnership with three partners and those partners all own a one third interest in that that partnership so they're even you know kind of pro rata partners and two of them want to do the exchange and one of them does not in that scenario it's actually pretty easy uh, you would take the one partner that doesn't want to exchange and prior to your closing you would deed out an undivided interest so you you become a tenant in common so now the partnership would own a two-third undivided interest in the property the non-exchanging partner would own a one-third undivided interest uh, and now the partnership can do a 1031 exchange and the one partner can cash out and there's no risk there there's no challenges and they obviously have to do that before they close but and, and it gets to be better to do before they go under contract to sell that property, but should they also do it some time period before that? Right. In that particular fact, fact pattern, you could make that change the day before closing. You know, I would recommend, you know, I, I'm a big proponent of dotting the I's and crossing the T's. So clearly I would recommend amending the contract in that case so that yeah. the contract follows what actually occurs. Okay. Where you may have a timing issue would be, let's take that fact pattern and let's change it slightly. Mm -hmm. Let's say that one of the partners wants to do an exchange and two of the partners do not. Mm -hmm. Well, if they're pro rata partners, what's going to happen now is you're going to have a significant change in what that partnership looks like. If two do not want to do the exchange and one does, if we do this, this tenancy in common, what happens now is the one remaining partner that wants to do the exchange, he only owns a one-third interest. So not to get too deep into tax law, but you essentially have liquidated that partnership. Mm -hmm. um, the same thing would happen if two of the partners want to do an exchange, one of them does not, and the two that do want to do an exchange want to do their own separate exchanges. So in any fact pattern where you're going to have a greater than 50% ownership change in that partnership, you've liquidated that partnership in the eyes of the IRS. And why that becomes problematic is that the partnership 
has held the property and established that it's an investment asset or has established that it's been used in a trader business. When we transfer out and we make this liquidating distribution out to the two partners that want to do an exchange, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say we terminate the partnership, we distribute out to all three partners, so they all become tenants in common now. The argument at the IRS level has been, wait a minute, these partners are different taxpayers than the partnership. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I want to see the partner reestablish that this asset is held as an investment or right. used in their trade of business. Right. Well, if you do it the day of closing, is that really long enough to establish something? And right. the IRS has argued no. So yeah. your question becomes, are there timing challenges? Uh, and the answer is, in a perfect world, you would do this drop. These are referred to as drop and swap transactions because you're mm -hmm. dropping partners out and allowing them to do an exchange. So in a perfect world, you do the drop at least a year out. Okay. So okay. here's my question to you, Michael Bull. When is the last time a client called you a year before they wanted to sell some real estate <laughs> and said, Michael, I want to sell it. What should I do? You know, I like it when they do it, but the very seldom. Right. You know, I like it so that I can say, look, let's help you asset manage it. Let's help you do the leases. Let's help you get everything ready. So please do call me a year in advance, but no, they yeah. don't do it. So Ricky, let me ask you this. So three of us are three individuals. We're going to buy a property together. We want to have the greatest flexibility when we sell that property one day in case some of us want to exchange and some of us don't. How would you suggest we set up the entities to create that flexibility? Sure. So, you know, there one option is to just look at what you can and can't do. Okay, The fact pattern we just talked about, notice that it didn't say you can't do it. Mm -hmm. uh, the issue is you're taking on a certain degree of risk if you do this planning kind of the day of closing. Uh, I'll tell you that probably 80% of the clients we talk to are willing to take those kinds of risks that mm -hmm. under an audit, the IRS may have a question on what they've done, but it's clear within the code and regs that nothing says you can, you can't. The best thing to do is to pre-plan, to be thinking about things, think about your exit long before you decide to put the property on the market. So as you mentioned, it would be great if clients would call and say, I'm thinking of putting this property in the market, what might we consider doing? Mm -hmm. You're usually gonna hold a property in a partnership because from a lending perspective, lenders like partnerships much better than tenancy and common relationships. Mm -hmm. If you want flexibility, have the three partners each buy an undivided interest in the real estate, let them be tenants in common, let them have a management agreement. Set, set up that way when you buy the property. That would be the best yeah. way to do it and create flexibility. The challenge is going to be, is the lender going to be comfortable with that? Yeah. Well, hopefully they will. If they're comfortable... Well, we'll get to that in the next segment. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Stay with us. Ricky Novak will share more 1031 exchange strategies. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by Florida International University. With FIU's Fast Track system, you can earn your master's in real estate in just 10 months without interrupting your career. Visit FIUonline.com to learn more. That's FIUonline.com. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Today we're talking about the latest trends related to 1031 tax exchanges, and we have Ricky Novak here in Studio One with us talking about exchanges. And, Ricky, one of the things that uh, have become more common, and I guess they've been around a long time, our construction exchanges. Before we, we get into it, who might a construction exchange work well for? 
Well, we see a lot of construction exchanges for, for what I would refer to as your, your merchant builders. Mm-hmm. Uh, these uh, might be uh, groups that are building single tenant net lease assets mm-hmm. where historically uh, they've really kind of just flipped those assets and, and paid the tax on them and moved on down the road. Uh, also, it's a great opportunity for someone that finds a, a great target replacement property. Maybe they sold an asset for $8 million. They find a great replacement asset for $6 million, but it needs a couple of million dollars of, of work to it. So it construction exchange would work well. Okay. And tell us how construction exchange works. So much like the reverse exchange, the QI is serving as an accommodating title holder. So what will happen, and you can do these as a forward construction or even a reverse construction where you can buy and start building before you sell. Uh, But essentially what will happen is the QI will come in, it will acquire the replacement property, which will include dirt and any improvements that exist on the dirt. And then the QI, through the accommodating title holder, will continue to own that asset while the improvements are being made. Now, the accommodating title holder doesn't want to be responsible for completing any of this work. So what's going to happen is we're going to turn around and enter into a construction management agreement with the taxpayer so they can oversee that construction process and handle all of the day-to-day operational decisions associated with that construction. Okay. And we talked earlier when you gave the uh, example of the reverse exchange and now with the construction exchange where the accommodating title holder is really a title holder. And in your example, you said that, you know, maybe they're getting a loan for 75% of the purchase price. Are lenders comfortable with that situation of, of loaning on a property that is not really in the eventual uh, buyer's name? Yeah. Well, they have been for a couple of reasons. Um, first and foremost, the asset is still being pledged as collateral, which is clearly something that the, the bank is going to want. Uh, additionally, even though we are the borrower under the terms of the bank loan, mm-hmm. ultimately the guarantor of the note is going to be the taxpayer, which is who they anticipate it uh, to be the you know the uh, guarantor from the start. So if you look at it from the bank's perspective, they're getting the asset as collateral, they're getting the guarantee that they want it. Uh, we have found that probably 95% of lenders um, are comfortable with these transactions. Every once in a while we get a bank that says, haven't heard of it, and our outside legal counsel isn't sophisticated enough to tell us yes or no, so we're going to pass. Okay. Give us some more examples of construction exchanges. I'm, I guess you could also use them if you were buying an apartment complex and it needed to be renovated, uh, or maybe you're exchanging something that the value of the property, the replacement property, is, is something or slightly less uh, than the property you sold, but you know it needs some improvements. Right. That That's always a great time to use a construction exchange mm-hmm. because now the value of those improvements are going to count as part of your replacement value. Mm -hmm. So at the time that the intermediary wraps up the 1031 exchange, they're gonna transfer the asset that they've been holding to the taxpayer. And so for replacement value purposes, it's the cost basis from buying the property plus the amount that's been spent on the improvement. So one of the issues you clearly have is timing. Uh, If you're doing a facelift to a shopping center, uh, the question is, how much time do you need? Mm -hmm. Uh, So we try to help counsel clients to really pay close attention to your timing. Mm-hmm. If you're selling, and, and Michael, quite frankly, this is where you know firms like yours play a great role in advising mm-hmm. clients. Mm-hmm. If you're selling a property June the 1st, mm-hmm. and you know that you need to do improvements to a potential replacement property that are going to take four months, you have to make sure you close the replacement property in fairly short order so you can start on those improvements. Mm-hmm. It becomes an even greater challenge when your construction exchange is completely ground up. Go back to the concept of a merchant builder who's 
in today's world, if you're building the Walgreens and selling it within a year, chances are you're paying over 50% tax. So for a merchant builder, if they can instead hold the property for maybe a year and a day and then exchange it and exchange into buying a new piece of dirt and doing improvements, the biggest challenge is from the day that that dirt is acquired, you only have 180 days to get the improvements done. So it's really lining up timing, having the replacement property ready to close in very short order after you sell your relinquished property, having your permits in place so you can start construction immediately. Thinking through those things are critical. Okay, well said and good points. Well, Ricky, you've, you've done a lot of exchanges. You've talked about construction. You've talked about reverse. What are some things, other things that, that we haven't mentioned yet that exchangers should be concerned about or watch when they're doing a, a 1031? Where do you see uh, the most problems occur, potential issues? Sure. So another area where we definitely see some challenges is sometimes when you sell real estate, it's actually part of a business sale, right? And so in the commercial real estate world, hotels, convenience stores are examples of that. So oftentimes when someone is selling those types of assets, they're also selling the business. Mm -hmm. So a question is, should you structure that as an asset sale, meaning you're going to break down the sale of the property into real estate, personal property, goodwill going concern, inventory, or are you going to sell the stock in the LLC or S corporation that owns the real estate? Mm -hmm. You have to think through those things because oftentimes uh, when you look at it, if you're going to exchange into other businesses, it really may make sense to do a 1031. Mm -hmm. And so understanding how to allocate value amongst those different asset types, the real property, the personal property, et cetera. If you allocate value to goodwill going concern or inventory, those are taxable. They're not exchangeable. So if you're selling a hotel or a convenience store, obviously you would want the majority of your value to be allocated into the real property or the personal property. So planning a business sale is really important uh, and you've got to think through it. And we always say that's where you want the accountant to play a role as well. Yeah, that's a good point. And there's also a business side of that. Sometimes we see companies sell their business and they didn't handle it to maximize the value of the real estate. So I think also just looking at selling that real estate separately. Well, stay tuned. We'll have more from Ricky Novak. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by RealCrowd. RealCrowd lets you invest directly into shares of cash-flowing real estate with low investment minimums and the ease of investing online. Visit realcrowd.com slash radio. That's realcrowd.com slash radio. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Do you have a commercial real estate question? Well, we hope you do. We hope you send it to us. Each day I answer a commercial real estate question with a quick video. It's on YouTube. It's on the uh, Twitter channel, Ask Michael Bull. You can also find it at the new Commercial Real Estate Show website at the tab Answers. And if you haven't heard the website yet, well, it's CREshow.com. Today we're talking about 1031 exchange strategies with Ricky Novak. And Ricky, can foreign investors investing in the U.S. or U.S. investors that want to trade into properties that are outside the U.S. use 1031 exchanges? You're probably one of the biggest misconceptions out there is people don't realize you can use 1031 at an international level. Uh, and so the two examples you gave are, are really the, the, the right ones. If you are a U.S. investor and you are investing in 
real estate outside of the U.S. You can do an exchange. The key is to remember that your exchange always has to be U.S. to U.S. property or non-U.S. to non-U.S. You can't mix and match. So if you're a U.S. investor and you happen to invest in an apartment complex in Germany and you're going to sell that German property, you can't exchange and buy replacement property back in the U.S. And the U.S. is defined under the tax code for exchange purposes as the United States, the 50 states, plus some U.S. protectorates. So Guam, American Samoa, U.S. Virgin Islands are a couple of examples. So U.S. to U.S., non-U.S. to non-U.S. is something to remember. On the flip side, if you are a foreign national but happen to also be a U.S. taxpayer, then you can also do a 1031 exchange. And the interesting thing is you may live in the U.K., you may be selling a property that you own in the Netherlands, you may be buying a replacement property in Italy, so it really technically has nothing to do with the United States. You don't live here, the real estate isn't here, but if you're a U.S. taxpayer, you're subject to U.S. taxation. So you could actually do a 1031 exchange in that situation. Obviously, there's been a big influx of foreign investors in U.S. real estate, uh, a lot of money coming out of China, a lot of money coming out of the Middle East, coming out of Europe. Uh, so clearly, this is something that people should know about. Yeah, that's interesting. And then some folks are interested in buying homes or, or buying second homes. What are the rules there related to 1031 exchanges? It has to be held for, for investment, right? And that's the key is yeah. it has to be held for investment and it also has to not be used primarily for personal use. Mm-hmm. Uh, you will never find someone that buys a beach house and says, oh, it was not an investment. Everyone buys it because it is an investment. Mm-hmm. What the IRS says is we want to make sure it's not primarily a personal use asset. If I had to list the grayest of gray areas, it's defining exactly whether something is being used personally or being used as an investment. So the facts and circumstances are very important. There's some guidelines that are out there from the IRS. Uh, There's case law, there's a revenue procedure that will grant, again, a safe harbor. Most clients aren't following that safe harbor, so then you just have to look at what have they been doing. I tell clients, you wanna be safe, put your property into a rental program, rent it for at least a year, don't really overuse it personally, and likely you're going to have an investment asset. Right. So if you know you, it is a second home that you're trying to exchange into and that's what you're going to use it for, then it's just not going to work. It, you know, yeah. If you're audited, the IRS is likely going to tell you they disagree with what you've done. Uh, right. Again, there's nothing that specifically says you can't. You just take on that risk should you be audited. Right. And it seems like a pretty big risk when you think about the penalties and then the interest. that may, Maybe they do that several years later. Sure. Uh, and it could be uh, costly. Well, final quick closing tip for our listeners. You know, the single most important thing that I can tell someone is to be proactive in this process. You know, shameless plug for our wonderful host, Michael Bull. Work with someone that understands 1031. Work with a real estate broker or agent that really understands you've got to be planning well in advance so you have the greatest flexibility in what you can do. If you're proactive, you'll have much greater outcomes than if you're reactive. Well said, Ricky. Thanks for joining us. Always good to be here. For more information from Ricky, visit SEA1031.com. I'm Michael Bull. Until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh, and join us for the Commercial Real Estate Show. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by RealCrowd, crowdfunding for institutional quality real estate. Visit realcrowd.com radio. 
Florida International University. Earn your commercial real estate master's degree in as little as 10 months. Visit FIUonline.com. And Bull Realty Commercial Brokers, a great place to do business. Visit BullRealty.com. And France Media Publications and Conferences. For exposure to the world of commercial real estate, visit FranceMediaInc.com.